Good morning, Northbrook. I think I messed my voice up singing, so so if I sound like I'm going through puberty, that's why. I already did that a long time ago. Speaking of a long time ago, last night we were watching football game, or I was, they were sitting by me, and uh, they brought up a game, you know, one of those historical points in the game, and uh, talking about a, uh, a moment where the quarterback couldn't play and they brought in this guy who was over 40 years old and played for the Raiders. His name was George Blanda, for those of you who are old enough. And, uh, and, and he ended up winning the game for him. But I, I sat there and I turned to Terry. They said that was in a particular year. And I looked at her and I said, I was nine years old. I remember that game. I remember that happening. That was 50 years ago. I re so that's when I started feeling really old again. But uh, that's life. It happens to the best of us from what I understand. Um, we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter three this morning. Really appreciated Andrew's prayer. That passage is one of them that I think we we read it and we just kind of go right through that uh, story of uh, the children, males under two, being killed. And we really don't feel it or think about it too deeply for various reasons. But um, I was, I w it actually came up in a book I was reading this past week called When the Stars Disappear. And um, uh, it's a new book out that's on, it's a volume one of four volumes on suffering and it's really good. But uh, he, he references that, that story there as far as the things of life that happen. And I was reminded as Andrew was praying of the stuff that's been happening this week in the news in our lives. And um, you know, it's important for us to remember that God puts up one man and, and takes down another. And uh, the people who are in power are there by his will and his purposes, and we're called to trust in his will and his purposes, no matter what happens. And and I was thinking as as um, as he was praying of of Jesus sleeping in the boat and all of the chaos and everything that was going on around him, and everybody else was freaking out, and uh, and and he calmed the storm. But he, he, was, he was at peace with everything that was happening. And you can say that's because he knew he was going to calm the storm. Possibly, but don't we know that he calms the storms and that we're supposed to just walk with him through the midst of everything that's going on. Um, and, and in some ways, what happened this week seems like, you know, some of the worst things that could happen in the United States. And it was awful. And yet, um, I'm old enough to be able to reflect back that we've been through a lot of junk over the years in our country. And um, uh, there's, been, there's been conflict and, and um, uh, restlessness for as long as I can remember. And uh, we're called to trust in Jesus and to trust in God's will because His will is never thwarted. And we should 
be to a watching world like Jesus at calm and at peace in the midst of a storm. So um, that wasn't planned this morning. It just came to me as I was listening and praying with um, Aaron, Aaron, Andrew. See, I can remember a football game from 50 years ago, but I can't remember Andrew's name today. It's 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 just bad. But uh, let's let's seek to be like Jesus as we live in these times. I'm going to read all of um, Hebrews 3 again. I was planning on us being done with Hebrews 3. This is a heads up to Scott for next week too. Uh, I'll have to change the schedule. But um, I, I had way too much for one Sunday. So I decided to split chapter 3 into another sermon for next week. Um, there's just important stuff here that I don't want to skip over. So um, we're going to read through all of chapter 3 again today and look at part of it, and then look at the rest of it next Sunday. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. A long time ago, um, 40 years probably now, I heard someone say the test of a young man's, a test of a man's character 
is what it takes to stop him. It's a good saying. And that short little statement really resonated with me when I was young, and it became a way of life for me. As a parent, I communicated this philosophy and worldview, if you will, to my daughters, Rachel and Alyssa, through another short phrase. And they heard it often and got sick of it. But I used to say to them, you're a Yankee, and Yankees don't quit. And I based a lot of that off of my grandfather and, and his story and the kind of person I wanted to be. But I would say that to them when they wanted out of something that had become hard or difficult. They, they, were, they were involved in something that was, was going to be a long road of, of things they didn't like and they wanted out. And I would just say, Yankees, don't quit. I wanted them to understand the importance of enduring in difficult circumstances. We talked today about snowflake generation and helicopter parenting and how parents are just trying to protect their kids from any little thing that could make them unhappy or make their life difficult. I was talking, Terry and I were talking with a uh, therapist one time and she made the statement that we've moved from helicopter parenting to snowplow parenting where not only are we trying to protect them, we're going ahead of them and plowing any obstacle out of their way so they don't have to deal with that difficulty. And many people observe that, sorry for those of you who are in this age group, but many people have observed that our young people um, are very fragile and they don't deal well with difficulty. I didn't want my kids to be those kinds of people when they grew up or that kind of a person when they grew up. And this idea of enduring in difficult circumstances seems to be one of the driving reasons why this letter was written to these people in the early church. The writer of Hebrews seems to be concerned about people who identified as the children of God. They came together to gather with other people who were believers for worship. They claimed to be children of God They claimed a a profession of faith. But they were also people who were experiencing intense persecution. And as a result of that persecution and the difficulties of their lives, were quitting the faith. They were abandoning the faith. Some of them seemed to be struggling with the influence and familiarity of their past religious experiences and had begun to mix in old religious practices with the gospel. We find ourselves in many ways in similar situations today, and I honestly don't think it's going to get better. I think as time goes forward, and as we live in this world, life is going to get more and more difficult for believers. As Somebody here said to me, they don't think, they think that at work, it isn't going to be, are you willing to tolerate certain lifestyles? It's going to move to, if you don't affirm certain lifestyles, you're not going to be able to keep your job. I I think that is probably true. 
But there has been a wave at this point when the persecution isn't really that bad, but because of difficult circumstances in life, there's been a trend in Christian circles where popular writers and speakers are publicly announcing that they no longer believe the Bible or key doctrines. People who have been main leaders, main writers, main speakers out there are now doing what they're calling deconstructing. And they're going through this process of reevaluating everything that they believe and coming to the conclusion that the Bible is not true or major portions of the Bible is not true. And at the same time that that's happening, everyday ordinary church members are giving up on the church. They're embracing false teaching or they're simply spiritually checking out. They're still going through all the motions, but they're spiritually just not there anymore. And in many cases, there was some underlying experience that in their mind was unreconcilable with what they believed and which left them disillusioned about God and the Bible. They had an idea about God they had, a, they had a view of God. They had a view of church. They had expectations for what that was supposed to be. And when that was undermined in their mind, that, that something happened in their lives that they couldn't reconcile with God, they just pitched it. And I understand what it's like to be in that circumstance. You guys have heard me talk about my past. I understand what it feels like to have experiences that seem not to reconcile with the God of the Bible, the God I understood. But the problem wasn't that God had a problem. The problem was that the God I understood, my understanding, was wrong. And that is the issue that's pressing in on these people we're going to find out later that some of them have been imprisoned. There are people who have lost their lives for the gospel. There's societal pressure pushing in on these people. There's circumstances pushing in on them. And there are people who are walking away. I'm reminded of John's statement, they went out from us because they were not of us. In John's time, the Apostle John, as he writes his letter, from the church in Ephesus is referencing people who are walking away from the truth. But unlike me telling my children to tough it out through physical or emotional difficulties, the writer of Hebrews takes a different approach by pointing his readers to Jesus. And I don't think it's wrong for me to tell my children, just to be clear, you're a Yankee and Yankees don't quit. I, I think it's good to have an identity as a family. And I think it's good for our kids to learn to tough it out through difficult circumstances. But the underlying issue here for the Hebrews, the, the people who are being written to in this letter and to us today, is not simply the idea of toughing it out, 
The idea is be like Jesus. And so the writer tells us at the beginning of this chapter to consider Jesus. And he's from the beginning of this book been talking about who Jesus is, what he is about, and what that means for us. And he's presented to us, Jesus is presented to us as God in human flesh who blazed a path of enduring obedience in the face of difficulty. Probably one of the most vivid graphic displays of this is Jesus in the garden. As he did, I think I mentioned last week, as he did sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, or actually this was uh, for one of the Advent sermons, I talked about that. And his response to it all is to ask his father to relieve him from what is pressing down in on him. This cup, the cup probably refers to the wrath of God that he is going to endure and die on the cross and die a very gruesome death. And as he prays to his father, he says, he concludes with, not my will, but yours. He endured in the face of horrible difficulty as he trusted in his father. And ultimately, there is a message to those who are the children of God, those who want to be like their brother Jesus, and that is that we have Jesus as our example to display what it means to be Christ-like. I mentioned when I started. We are living in odd times, weird times, strange things are happening. The wrath of man which does not work the will of God is happening. And, And we're called to display how Jesus would be acting in these moments. We're called to display the fruit of the Spirit because it's who we are. These are moments where Christians have incredible opportunities to be light in darkness by how they live, to shine like stars in the darkness by how they live. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is ultimately calling us to is, is here's Jesus. This is what he's like. You need to pursue being like him in order that you may display Christ's likeness and the power of God to transform human lives. In this portion of the letter, the writer of Hebrews shares with us an important core truth about Jesus and his family. The people who call themselves the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the children of God. He says an important thing about Jesus And then he's going to bring it back to us as the brothers and sisters of Jesus. But this important core truth about Jesus that he presents to us in the first section in verses 1 to 6 is that Jesus, as the Son of God, was completely faithful to his Father as a member of God's family. 
He was completely faithful. There was never a moment where Jesus was unfaithful to His Father's will and purposes. There was never a moment when Jesus was unfaithful to His Father's desires. He lived 100% of the time doing exactly and wanting exactly what His Father wanted. But that sounds great until we realize that that's what we're called to do. But Jesus faithfully proclaimed the message of God and He faithfully fulfilled the purpose of God. So if we who are His brothers and sisters claim to be members of the family of God, there's an expectation that we will be characterized as people who pursue faithfulness like our brother Jesus. In fact, and there's a couple of controversial statements in this passage, but in fact, the writer of Hebrews says that this faithfulness in our lives, this desire and this performance of God's goodwill, this faithfulness in our lives ultimately is an indicator that the person is a member of the family of God. The argument he makes here is, if you want to claim that you're a member of the family of God, then that will be displayed in your faithful obedience to the Father. He says this, idea first in verse 6. We are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He says it again in verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Those are strong statements. And some have come to argue that you can lose your salvation, that that's what he's talking about. But it's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, the evidence of your salvation does not rest in your profession. The evidence of your salvation does not rest in whether or not you went forward or the prayer that you prayed. The evidence of your salvation is found in your faithful obedience to the Father. And if you are not faithful to the Father as the way of life, writer of Hebrews is saying you've never known the Father. So, if we do indeed hold fast our confidence in our boasting and our hope, and if we do indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end, we have a right to claim that we are the children of God. But there is a problem with that. There's a problem for us humans who claim to be God's children. We are not Jesus, and we are easily self-deceived. 
I mean, if we just go back this week and let's, let's set aside all the stuff that's happening out there with, with politics in Washington, D.C., and let's just come back to Cedar Rapids, to the house in which you live, and the job that you work, and the thoughts and the attitudes and the actions you've had this past week. And I think it's probably fair to say that we struggle with obedience to God's expectations. Is that fair to say? If we just go back one week, just go back to last Monday and work forward to yesterday, and we won't even throw in this morning. The reality is that we humans struggle with obedience to God's expectations. In other words, if, if you want me to say that in a more simple way, we sin and we sin a lot. So we have here on the one hand, faithful obedience to God as an indicator of our salvation. And on the other hand, we sin and we sin a lot. So what do we do about that? I think that in response to our sin, we really have two options. And, and that's part of what is being said here in verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. I, I just got to throw this in. I was going to leave it out of my sermon, but I can't. Verse 7 this is a quote from Psalm 95, referencing back to the children of Israel and the story in the book of Numbers and their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And there's, there's three words there, four words. The Holy Spirit says. He doesn't say the psalmist says. He puts this right in the sphere of the Holy Spirit said this. These are the Holy Spirit's words. This is God's word. And, and I find it interesting that the verb tense is present. The Holy Spirit says. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit said. He, said, he writes it in the sense that the Holy Spirit is still saying this. Even though it was spoken a long time before this was written. We're called to today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In verse 15, he says it again. He says it the first time right after verse 6. If we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In verse 14, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. What he's communicating to us is that when we sin, and we sin a lot, we have the choice to acknowledge our sin, to repent of that sin, and to commit to future obedience as we ask the Holy Spirit to help us to be more like Jesus. 
I would argue that that's actually part of holding our confidence firm to the end. The child of God, when he or she sins, does not look at the sin and take the second option of justifying their sin. Well, yeah, I did that, but they did. This happened. God did. And I did. Or to deny it is sin. That's kind of the modern thing. We just start taking out our spiritual scissors and cutting out of the Bible anything that we want to do that God has said not to do. I don't have to worry about that anymore. So I deny that it is sin. And then I go on in my disobedience while I still claim to be a member of God. I justify my sin. I deny my sin. I deny that it is sin. And I go right on with what I was doing while I say I'm a child of God. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, you're not. You can't make that claim to be a member of the family of God or to claim that you are one of the people of God any more than the Israelites could when they did it. Those were people that heard God's voice and said to Moses, tell God not to talk to us anymore. We can't handle this. We only want to hear from you. Those were people who said, we will keep the covenant. And it was sealed with the sprinkling of blood on them and turned around and went into immorality and idol worship shortly thereafter. They were the ones who continually pushed back against God and asked why He had put them where they were, why He was leading them in the places where He was leading them. To die in the wilderness. To die of thirst. To die of hunger. And then we're tired of what You're giving us to eat. We don't want to eat this anymore. Grumbling, 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 grumbling. And the writer of Hebrews argues that it was an evidence that they were not actually members of God's family. They weren't actually the people of God. And Jesus says the same thing to the Pharisees when He points out to them that they claim to be of the Father, but says, if you knew the Father, you would listen to me. You'd know me. But you don't know me and you don't recognize me. You're not faithful to the Father you claim because your real Father is the devil. God saw these people, the Israelites, not as the true people of God and not as the true worshipers of God. He saw them differently than how they saw themselves. He described them as people with hard, rebellious hearts. Remember, these words here that are quoted from Psalm 95 
were the words of God the Holy Spirit. He spoke these words. So God sees them as people with hard, rebellious hearts. These were people who in spite of seeing God's presence and power every single day of their lives for 40 years and more. They saw the pillar of cloud by day. They saw the pillar of fire by night. They saw God make water come out of a rock. They saw the manna come down. They saw Egypt's army swamped and drowned in the Red Sea. They saw God over and over again, His presence and His power in their lives. And instead of trusting Him and believing Him, they rejected Him and they questioned Him and they went astray. And they were people who were characterized by their sin and their unfaithfulness. Let me ask you, how many times have you read the stories of Israel? In Numbers? In the book of Joshua? How many times have you read those stories or Judges? And you get done reading the story and you just kind of either externally or internally shake your head and say, what was wrong with those people? I know I have a lot over the years. When I preached through Numbers, every time we'd go through those stories, it was just like, man, how could they not believe? How could they not be obedient to God? How could they not trust Him? They're idiots. And that's because they were characterized. We, we have that response to them because they're characterized by their unbelief. They're characterized by their disobedience. They're characterized by that unfaithfulness. And the, the writer of Hebrews, quoting from the Word of God, tells us that in the end, these people did not inherit the promises of God. But in God's wrath, under God's wrath, they died in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10, similar passage. And Paul there says their carcasses were strewn across the wilderness. They died under the wrath of God because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience. And I've already said, we have a question here, what was their underlying problem? What was the underlying problem with those people? I've already told you. But we, we can't put the blame on God. The, the Israelites couldn't stand back and blame God as the issue nor can we today stand back and blame God because it's not about His faithfulness or His failure. On, on the one hand, I, I understand the sense of, God, this is not how I understood You to be. And that's a nice way of saying what I said. 
Jeremiah, I was, this, this book I mentioned, I, I really would recommend that you get it um, when the stars disappear. Uh, the author, the first volume, goes through the stories of Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah to talk about um, their responses to their situations. It's a really good book. Uh, but he, in the book, the author brought out the story of Jeremiah. And I knew Jeremiah had some real problems with, with doubting and questioning God. The author really brought it to, a, to, to bear in my life as to where Jeremiah was. But Jeremiah at one point says, God, you deceived me. And, and a paraphrase of his next statement is, and I allowed you to deceive me. I was stupid to even believe you in the first place. And you deceived me. Jeremiah's life was just one set of suffering after another set of suffering after another set of suffering. To the point that his friends were turning on him. The government hated him. His message was to proclaim that they were going into judgment and God was going to judge his people. While all the other prophets were saying, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. And after a particular beating by the leader of their religious worship, uh, one of the priests, the high priest, Jeremiah is beaten horribly. Basically, he reaches a point where he says, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. You deceive me, God. But our problem is not that God deceived us. It's not because God wasn't faithful. When, when Moses says, when he asked God to let him see God, when Moses says, let me see your glory, God responds by saying, I am good and gracious, merciful and faithful. He caused Moses to see all of his goodness and graciousness. And God claims about himself that he is merciful and faithful. So when we sin or rebel against God, and if you just read the Bible, if you just think about the cross, we learn of the goodness and the graciousness and the mercy and faithfulness of God. But when we sin or rebel against God, it doesn't give us an out where we can try to shift the blame to Him. And say, well, if you hadn't put me in these circumstances, if you hadn't done this, if you hadn't taken this away, if, if this person hadn't done this, then I would have remained faithful. But, but you... Adam, why did you eat the fruit? The woman gave it to me. This woman that you gave me gave it to me. If you wouldn't have made her so defective, I wouldn't have done this. That's, that's Adam's message. 
and that has genetically passed to us. And we look for every out when we do something that we're not supposed to do to the point that God becomes our out. Well, that was just too much, God. You asked too much of me. You can touch these things, but don't touch this. And you touched that. And you deceived me. But the problem for us, just like the Israelites, that problem lies in our own heart and our own choices. And that problem, according to verse 19, is unbelief. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. When we as humans sin, what the writer of Hebrews wants us to catch is that when we as humans choose sin, it is because we do not believe what God has said is true. In that moment of unfaithfulness, we have concluded that sin does not lead to death. We have deceived ourselves and believe that a little sin can be controlled. We believe that sinful self-indulgence satisfies our thirsts and hunger, and when we sin, we are living by the mantra, let every man be true and let God be a liar. It is rooted in an unbelief in who God is, what He claims as authority over sinners, what He has said will happen to those who sin. And for, for some, there, there is a belief in Jesus that has led to salvation with moments of unbelief about sin and what God has said. For many others, if we are to see the people of Israel as normative of humans. There are many others who claim belief, but there isn't even a belief in Jesus for salvation. And that's the danger that we're warned about in this letter. It is the danger of believing that one can be a child of God and yet live like the devil in rebellion against God. John MacArthur wrote a book a number of years ago called The Gospel According to Jesus, where he argued that the Bible makes it very clear that people of God, the children of God, are going to be transformed by the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus over the course of their life. And he made a very strong argument that you cannot claim to be a child of God and live as a child of the devil. That book created a firestorm in Christian circles. I grew up where there were three kinds of Christians. There were spiritual Christians, 
Well, there are three kinds of Christians. There were spiritual Christians, there were carnal Christians, and there were unbelievers. And carnal Christians were people who had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they were not ready to recognize Him as their Lord. And so they were saved, but they were living like the devil. And a person could live like that their whole life as long as that they prayed a prayer or believed. And MacArthur had the audacity to say, no. What we're classing as carnal Christians are actually unbelievers who are religious. Because those who are the children of God are the spiritual ones and they will grow in obedience to the Father. They will sin, but they will grow in obedience to the Father. But looking back now, I would say it's shocking that I was ever taught that and it's shocking that so many Christians got so mad at John MacArthur for actually arguing that the children of God are going to try to live like their father. What a heretical, horrible statement to make. But again, it was Jesus who said, you're of your father, the devil. I don't care what you claim. You live this way and you reject the truth and you're of your father, the devil. The writer here is warning us that someone might claim membership in the family of God yet live a life that's characterized by unfaithfulness to the God they call Father. It's the danger. And I think this is the danger more that that those who are regular attenders of church and go through all of those motions, it's the one that we face and it's the danger of unbelief wrapped in religious ritual and self-righteous morality. I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't run with girls who do. That's what I was raised on. I fast. I give tithes. And yet that man did not go home justified because he didn't believe. Religious ritual and self-righteousness and his morality. They're the ones who will argue their righteousness to God someday, yet hear him say, go away from me. I never knew you. Their way seemed right to them, yet they walked the path of death. Now, I'm not trying to get anyone insecure about their relationship with the Father. I'm simply explaining what the writer of Hebrews says. The good news is that there is a way to avoid the danger that he warns us about. I would argue that what he tells us that this way of life, this way of thinking, this 
this tenderizing of the heart that leads us away from rebellion does not begin through the avoidance of sin or unbelief. That's where we get messed up in the first place. Here's the top 10 sins to avoid. And here's another 20. And no, you might not find these 20 in the Bible, but you know they're linked to these others and we think that it's safest to stay away from these things because then you won't ever get to these things. That's how the Pharisees worked. If you avoid sin, here's the solution. If you avoid sin, and that resonates with us because it appeals to our self-sufficiency. It appeals to our morality. It appeals to our self-righteousness. So when people get up and say, stop, and if you don't do these things, but then we still are doing those things, But salvation doesn't come through avoidance of sin or an avoidance of unbelief. Salvation comes from believing in Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews, writing to these people, says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the faithful one. Consider Jesus in a way that believes. Believe in His Sonship. Believe in His deity. Believe in His authority. Believe what Jesus has said is true. And rest in the forgiveness and righteousness that Jesus secured with His blood on their behalf. You know, if, if, if what I say this morning causes you to go away in insecurity of salvation in relation to salvation. Begin with who's Jesus and what did He do for me? Am I resting in that? Do I believe that? Don't go away and start thinking, okay, did I pray the right prayer? Did I repent enough? Did I believe enough? Go away asking yourself, do I believe that He is God? Do I believe that He has ultimate authority over my life? Do I believe His words to be true? Am I resting in His blood, His forgiveness, His righteousness? And I think that the result of that kind of belief through the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be a display of increasing faithfulness to the Father a desire for that. And there will be a heart that cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, this passage is going to go on to give a lot of other very practical ways to help us battle with unbelief. We're going to be told to listen to His voice. We're going to be told to encourage one another 
we're going to be told to be aware of our own heart condition. And we'll look at those next week. But for now, I would encourage you to simply consider the faithfulness of Jesus and ask God to help you be honest about your own life. Is your life characterized by increasing faithfulness to God? Is that the pattern over the long term? Is there increasing faithfulness to God? Are you becoming more God-like in the way you live? Evaluate your life. Not in the sense of, does God love me more because I'm doing these things? But in the sense of in your heart, is there a desire to obey God? Overall, is there a desire to obey God? Or is He simply an add-on into your life or maybe an insurance policy, a supplemental insurance policy in case you need Him? Is there a desire to pursue the fruit of the Spirit in your life? I mentioned last week that I was going to be preaching um, uh, online to uh, my brother's nephew's church talking about joy. There was an incredible response to that. Um, and, And my brother told me Wednesday night in their Bible study they were still talking about that. There was this, and I appreciate you guys praying. I was really tired and, and uh, uh, God used it. But, you know, there was, this, there was this desire to want the fruit of the Spirit in their life. The Q&A time went for over an hour afterwards, just trying to put together the understanding of that it's the fruit of the Spirit and, and, and what does it look like. That's a good sign. And I see those same kind of signs here. I'm not preaching from Hebrews 3 on this topic because I think we have a major problem here. We're just in Hebrews 3. But it's a good time to ask what's happening. And Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 13, he commands us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. That's supposed to be a regular thing. He says the same thing again in in um, 1 Corinthians 11 with the Lord's table. Examine yourselves. So it's a regular thing that we're supposed to be doing so that we don't deceive ourselves. And where we find sin, the heart of the believer is to say, that's sin. I want to be like Jesus. I want to repent of that. I want to live differently. The heart of the unbeliever is to tolerate, to excuse, to deny. For this week, I want to encourage you to consider Jesus and ask God to help you to be more like Him. And and I'll say this, if, if that happens for you, that's a really good sign. no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're dealing with, 
God, help me to be more like you. Help me to respond like Jesus. By the power of the Spirit, help me to display Christ-likeness. My prayer has been and is going to continue to be that none of us will be what the writer of Hebrews says, that we won't be evil. We won't have evil, unbelieving hearts that lead us to fall away from the living God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray that you will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, take your word this morning and take my attempts to explain this and in, a, in the hearts of your children that you will cause it to bear fruit. That there will be an affirming of who you are, an affirming of who Jesus is, and an affirming of trust in him and wanting to be like him. And God, if there are those this morning who are here, young or older, who are wrapping unbelief in religious ritual and self-righteous morality, God, help them to see their unbelief. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and cause belief, faith to take place. God, help us to glorify You and to serve others for their good because of Jesus. And I ask these things in His name. Amen.